our, many of our TV watching and news reading, I'm sure these days, are dominated by what's going on in Ukraine. And over the past week, we've all seen um, probably the same thing occur, which is you've seen President Zelensky um, talk to the world, and as he's gotten up and talking to the world, he's delivered a message of, of hope. He's delivered a message of, we will be victorious, we will overcome, we are fighting, and we are winning. And isn't it interesting, on the other side of the aisle, you, hear, you have Vladimir Putin standing up and saying almost the exact same thing. And one of the things that's going on is that you have these world leaders and they're standing up and they're telling their people and they're telling the world that victory is sure. And that they know exactly what's going to happen. But they don't. That's right, Luke. <laughs> they don't know. And so what are they doing? What they're doing is that they're coming around their people. They're coming around their army. They're coming around their country. And they're trying to rally them. They're trying to encourage them. They're trying to get them to stand firm. They're trying to give them the courage and the fortitude to continue to fight. And the way that they're doing it is by projecting that they know that the outcome is sure and that they're going to win. And we all know, and thanks to Luke, who was able to tell us, they don't know. Neither one of them is sovereign. Neither one of them is in control. Neither one of them holds the future in their hands. They have no idea what's coming and the twists and the turns that come with war and that come with history and that comes with decisions that are being made that you have no control over. And praise be to God. Praise be to God. That is not what is happening in our text this morning. What is not happening in our text this morning is that Jesus is just trying to kind of rally the troops and He's just trying to give a rah-rah speech to encourage His followers, but He really has no control or no idea what's going to happen in the future. That is not what's going on in our text this morning. What is going on in our text this morning is that we have God in the flesh talking with His disciples and He is encouraging them to stay engaged, to stay in the battle, and He's doing it by telling them the future and letting them know that victory is sure. Stand firm. Be about the mission. Jesus, out of love, out of compassion, looks at these disciples and gives them this glimpse into the future. And they were going to be in need. We are in need. If they were to just maybe look around at the culture around them, if, if they didn't have this message from Jesus, this prophecy, this word about the future, they would have been tempted to despair. They would have looked at the world and what was going on and maybe got in trouble and said, oh my goodness, this is not what I was expecting. God's not in control. But 
brothers and sisters. Although that prophecy in the Bible can be confusing, although it can be misused, (laughs) although too much time sometimes can be spent on things that it shouldn't be spent on when it comes to prophecy, the goal, the motivation behind our God and Savior giving us these words is for us to be able to stand firm, to work, to endure. He gives us hope and He gives us strength. This text this morning is vital. It's vital. It's interesting. This is the longest discourse in the book of Mark. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this. It's the longest discourse. That means that Jesus is, this is the longest kind of recorded speech that we have of his in the book of Mark. And that means, kids, that it's important. It's significant. These aren't the throwaway verses. Jesus wants us to know something. Jesus is speaking here to us. And the other thing, as I've already mentioned, but I really want to drill down into your heads As Jesus is doing this, this isn't just some kind of neat thing that Jesus can do telling the future or seeing the future. That there's a practical nature to this, that Jesus is loving his disciples. He is loving us. He's being merciful and kind to us by giving us this glimpse into the future, by giving us this prophecy. Interestingly, Interestingly, and you might even be able to see, as I read, this may not surprise you, this prophecy is one of the most debated passages in the book of Mark, in the Synoptic Gospels. There are many, many, many different interpretations of this passage. Some non-Christians will use this passage, and, and here's the argument that they lay out about the Bible not being true and Jesus being untruthful. Next week, it'll be in Gary's passage, but when it looks and says, this generation will not pass away until these things occur, they'll say, oh, look, look, see, there it is. There's the error. It's talking about the second coming of Christ, and look, the generation has passed away. The disciples are gone. This word is full of errors. And I hope, I hope that you will see from a pretty careful reading of this passage that that argument doesn't really hold water. Those critics don't really understand what is going on in this passage. But it's not just critics who debate this. This is also, there are a lot of intramural debates about this passage. A lot of people read this passage and they come to different conclusions about uh, different things, the tribulation, the end times. And we're not going to come up with any charts here this morning. But what I think you'll see is that even though maybe scholars and maybe pastors and maybe good stewards of the word read this and come to some different conclusions about exactly what is going on, I hope what you will see this morning is that the conclusion all really comes down and funnels into the same thing and that we as Christians, the people of God's word, can stand together in this passage and look and say, Here are the implications and we are marching forward together with the same goal. Now, 
Again, we're not going to get all into all the debates, but I just want to say one word about why this is so confusing and why this is so difficult. Anytime you're dealing with prophecy, it's hard. I, I think in some ways that there's some intentional um, difficulty that God, as He has inspired the Bible when it comes to prophecy, that, there's, that, that it's fuzzy on purpose. But one of the things that we know if we just take the example of the Old Testament. We look back on this side of history and see the prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming of Christ and say, of course. Man, how did they not see this? But what's interesting, if we really think about it, it I think it would have been almost impossible for somebody who was reading the prophecies of the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah to understand that there would be two comings of the Messiah. That he would come, he would live, die, rise from the grave, and that he'd come again. One of the ways we talk about this, one of the ways that scholars have talked about this, is that when you look at prophecy in the Old Testament, especially, it's kind of like seeing a mountain range from a really long way away. I don't know if any of you have ever done this, but when I was young, we drove, some friends of mine in college, drove out to Los Angeles. And we drove... From St. Louis to Denver was a very boring drive, if you have ever made that drive. I think if you had a telescope and you looked down the interstate, you could see all the way to Denver, just straight down the interstate. But you get to a certain distance and all of a sudden you start to see this, this magnificent image that looks like a mountain. It is a mountain. But as you get closer, it's more than one mountain. And for those of you, we have some people who have lived in Denver. From a large distance, those mountains seem really close together. But when you get there, they're really far apart. It's the same way with prophecy. That there's so much more going on. And on this side of it, we see clearly. So when Jesus is giving us this prophecy about the future, there are going to be things that we just don't know. But when we get to heaven, we'll be like, ah, how did we miss that? It was right there in front of us. Now, don't miss this point. Don't miss this point. Look at verse 32. But of that day or hour, the return of the Son of Man, the return of Christ, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And one of the things that I find so fascinating, so fascinating, and I don't know if you who are younger teenagers, I don't know if you have lived through this, but when I was a teenager, um, there, was a, there was a group even here in Chattanooga that had predicted the end of time and Christ's return. And there were a bunch of people who went up on Lookout Mountain in white robes and were waiting for Christ that day. All throughout history, people have predicted the return of Christ on certain days. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus tells us you won't know. So some people would want to turn their ears off at this point, And I want to tell you, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Jesus wanted you, if the Holy Spirit wanted you to turn your ears off when we're talking about prophecy, he wouldn't have even inspired it and put it in this text. There is a vital purpose and a vital reason that we need to look at this and we need to study this and that we need to understand this. We can't just turn it off because we don't know exactly when 
it's going to take place. Now, the goal and the point of this text is that as these things are unfolding, as these things are unfolding, that we see, that we hear, that we say, oh yeah, even in the text this morning, wars and rumors of war, that what we're supposed to do is we see these things and we're supposed to be drawn into the reality of it is happening. It's supposed to detach us from this world and for us to know that this world is not what we're living for. We're living for something else and it's supposed to remind us of that. Next week, next week, as I said, Gary is going to focus on the part of this passage that talks about the return of Christ. But this week, this week we're going to focus on the first 23 verses. I'm going to fly through it, so don't worry. You don't need snacks. We're going to get through it. Now, in order to understand our text this morning, we've got to understand the context. If you've been with us as we've been studying the book of Mark, it has taken us several weeks or months to get, few, get through a couple of days in the life of Jesus. It's Passover. You've heard me say many times that at the center of Passover was the temple and worship in the temple. People were coming in and out of the temple. And we have found our Savior, our Lord, Jesus Christ, when He came into Jerusalem, He cleansed the temple, came out, and then came back in the temple. And He has been in the temple teaching and preaching and proclaiming and arguing. And the disciples have been there with him. The temple, the temple and Jesus being in the temple is at center stage, not only at this time of Passover, but at this part of our text. Now, what's interesting, I don't know what you think about, hopefully most of you, if you've been around the Bible, that you have an inkling that this temple was a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, but um, and I think this was meaning the temple walls and then all the area within it, that it was about 1.5 million square feet. Or about 35 acres. This temple was known as one of the wonders of the world. Josephus, a historian during this time, talks about that the temple was coated in gold so that and it was so large that when the sun was ex, was exposed on the temple that you could hardly look in the direction of the temple because of the reflection of the light this was a massive structure that was brilliantly put together and that people would come from all over and just be amazed by it you heard me read that Jesus says not one stone will be left uh, unturned. And when, when we're talking about this, we're not talking about bricks. The stones that were laid upon the temple the, the, from which the temple were created were massive. We have unearthed, not we, I haven't done any digging, but archaeologists have unearthed uh, the temple mount. And the, I have seen pictures of four men with their arms stretched out, and that's about the size of one of the stones. These are massive stones. This was a well put together temple. And when we look at verse 1, 
we have these men from the country, these Galileans, just marveling at this wonderful work of architecture. And notice it says, as he was going out of the temple, so they were leaving, the disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. I think there's two things going on here. I do think that there's this marveling at this great, wonderful structure, but I think there's another thing going on. I I just wonder if another thing that's going on is that these disciples are expecting the kingdom to return. The kingdom is here with Jesus immediately. And I wonder if the disciples are kind of saying, this is a nice place for us. Look at this wonderful building. This is fitting for a king. This will be a great place for your throne, Jesus. You may say, Lewis, we're, you know, that's a, you're making a little bit of a jump there, and you're right. But do you remember in the book of Acts? In the book of Acts, in the, in the first chapter, where Jesus is raised from the dead and He is getting ready to go be with the Father. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says, So when they had come together, they were asking Him, saying, Lord, is it at this time You are restoring the kingdom of Israel? That we know that the disciples, that what is in their mind is that the restoration of the kingdom of Israel is at hand and is going to happen at any time. This was their expectation. So when they come out of this temple, they're like, yeah, we'll take it. We'll take it. And so imagine the shock. Imagine the shock if this was their expectation when Jesus says this. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. This had to blow their mind. They're just not able to grasp what is going on. Their expectations are are being rocked. This is not how they thought it would be. And, and if, you, if you look at the text, what you're going to see in verse 3 is that we have this dialogue happen. And notice it happens on the Mount of Olives. It says, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, notice the wording opposite of the temple. And there's two things I want you to notice about this. One is that it took some time to get from the temple down into the valley up to the Mount of Olives. So there was some time. And the disciples, as they were walking, they had to be thinking They had to be questioning. They had to be wondering. And then our text tells us that as they're sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite of the temple, that the thing in front of them that dominated the landscape was what? The temple. So they're sitting here. The text is very clear to tell us that they're looking here at the sitting opposite of the temple, and Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately. And verse 4, this is the question. Or questions, tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled. I think what has tripped up some people who have read God's Word and tried to decipher these texts is that they think that these disciples are asking a single question and they're really asking two questions. There's two questions here. One question is, when is this temple going to be destroyed? 
what are you, what are you talking about? How is this going to take place? You know, I think they had the expe- expectation that Christ and His kingdom was here and that things were going to get better. And then they hear that the temple's going to be destroyed, that they're distraught. And they say, tell us, when will these things take place? And, and when all these things are going to be fulfilled. And so the rest of this chapter, Jesus is answering two questions. One of the things that Jesus is answering in this chapter is when is the temple going to be destroyed? The other thing that he is answering is when all these things are going to be fulfilled. When is the messianic age coming? When is the kingdom of God going to be fully realized? He's answering both of these questions. And so when we look at these verses and we have this in mind, things begin to make sense. And notice, as Jesus begins to answer this question in verse 5, He began to say to them, See to it. Some of your translations say, Take heed. Be able to see. Jesus is very clear as He's talking with His disciples, as He's loving them well. He's saying, Listen, you need to see this. You need to be able to see what I'm telling you. And then Jesus tries to reorient them. He spends the next three verses that we have, he tries to reorient them. He's trying to tell them, listen, you think that the kingdom is here right now and is getting ready to be inaugurated? Listen, you need to know, you need to know that things are going to get worse before it gets better. And it's always been this way because of sin. When sin entered into the world, it disrupted everything. And he wants his disciples to know sin is still reigning in this world and you need to see that things are going to continue this way for a while. Look at verse 6. And I want to ask the question, has this happened and does this happen? Many will come in my name saying I am he and will mislead many. Has that happened? Yes. Does it still happen? Yes. Look at verse 7. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, has that happened? Does that happen? Verse 8. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Have these things happened? Do they continue to happen? What Jesus is saying is that the natural order of the sin-stained cosmos is going to continue, so don't expect things to get better. Take heed. Watch out. Things are going to continue to be difficult. And then, and then, as Jesus explains, listen, Your worldview is wrong. He then turns to them. He looks at them in the eyeball, I'm assuming here. He looks them eyeball to eyeball. And he so lovingly, so lovingly tells them some information that is vital. Notice in verse 9. Be on your guard. And I think here he's talking to the disciples 
I think he's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. And and I'm going to lay that out. But watch here. Notice what's going on. Jesus looks and says, be on your guard. They will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony against them. What does that verse sound like? What man comes to mind when you hear that? Paul. Peter. We see this is kind of like a summation of the book of Acts. This is what we see unfolded in the book of Acts in many ways. Notice verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you will say, but whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. This reminds me of of Peter just standing and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just going for it, right? Look at verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death and father his child and children will rise up against his parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. This whole idea of you will be hated by all because of my name. What does that remind you of? The book of John, where Jesus says, if they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. No slave is above his master. Notice, notice the change. Jesus is telling his disciples This is going to happen. This is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. This is going to happen to you. And then notice, notice the change here in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's telling them, Go forward, do this, go in power of the Holy Spirit. But when you see this this abomination of desolation occur, run. Run. There's much debate over what the abomination of desolation is. We find it in the book of Daniel and prophecy in the book of Daniel. Um, We know that you, you know, if we take the wording down, that it's some kind of defilement, and it's some kind of defilement of the temple, and many people believe, and I'm one of them, that there were several, um, that this speaking of several times where the temple is defiled, and one was in 167 AD, where the Greeks, a Greek emperor came in and offered pagan sacrifices on the temple. And I think what we're seeing is that Jesus is saying it's going to happen again, Notice in verse 14 that he says, let the reader understand that Mark is wanting the reader to understand there's going to be an event. It's going to be this abomination, this desolation. You need to understand as well when you see this run. Now, we're helped because by Luke in Luke's gospel. In chapter 22, 21, verse 22. I'm sorry, I got the reference wrong. In Luke, let me get in my notes, 21 verse 20. There we go. 
It says, notice, notice Luke in this same account. Notice his wording is a little bit different. But when you see Jerusalem sounded by, surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. And so what I think that Jesus is saying is that when you see Jerusalem, when the Jewish, when the, when the, when the Roman armies are surrounding Jerusalem, and this happened in the late 60s to 70 A.D., when you see this, Jesus says, run for the hills. And He doesn't just say, run, flee to the mountains. Notice in verse 15, the one who is on the housetop must not go down or to get into anything or to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant in those days and nursing babies in those days. But pray, pray that this will not happen in the winter. Now, some people look at this and they think that this is talking about the second coming of Christ. But just, let's just take some common sense approach here. Are Christians going to run for the hills at the second coming of Christ? Who should run at the second coming of Christ? Those who are not believers. We are going to be gloriously united with our Savior. We should run from the hill. We won't have to run anywhere because His presence will be everywhere, right? What would it matter in the coming of Christ whether or not it's winter? Makes no sense. It could be like my kids. It could be negative five degrees outside and we could go outside with our shorts and short sleeve shirts and no shoes. We're going to be good. We're going to be with Him. This is talking about something different. This is talking about what happened in 70 A.D. And this is Jesus lovingly preparing His disciples for this event. And this event was horrific. You know, we've got reports from uh, the coastal city there in Ukraine where Russia has surrounded the city and there are people inside the city that are dying of starvation. They can't get food. They can't get supplies. And as I was thinking about that over the past couple of weeks, when you look back through history and when this war happened, when Rome came and surrounded Jerusalem, this is what happened. There were estimated of hundreds of thousands of people that died. People ran inside the walls of the temple. Thinking that they would find safety and solace there. Only to find out that they ran into their own death. It is said that people were throwing dead bodies over the walls. Because that's how many people were dying. And they had to dispose of them. And they were throwing them over the walls. If you tried to escape. To get out. The Roman army was there. And you would be killed. There are reports of women and children dying of starvation, dying of diseases. In fact, if you really look into these events and what happened, it'll make your stomach turn. So when we understand this, and we look and we see the reality. Verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God has created until now. 
and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. Verse 23. Take heed. Take heed, disciples. Take heed. I have told you everything in advance. That when the disciples asked about the destruction of the temple, that Jesus told them what was going to happen because He loved them and He cared about them and He wanted them to be saved. And so He lays this out and we see the mercy of the love and the love of God. And if they will listen to His words, if they will take heed, if they will pay attention, they will be saved. Now, if I were able, and I'm not able, to come to you and give you some kind of crazy prophecy about some destruction of Signal Mountain, and let's say that I said, no, this is going to happen, it, you know, and it, it may be 10 years, it may be 50 years, many of you would do what? You'd call Russ and you'd put your house on the market right now. Get out of Dodge. But notice, notice, I skipped some verses <laughs> Notice what Jesus is telling them. He's telling them not to leave. Look at verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. You have a job to do in the midst of this chaos. They would be coming in and out of Jerusalem as this mission headquarters. They have a job to do. And the job is that they are to proclaim the gospel to all nations. To, the, to all of the known world at the time. Look at verse 11. It says, When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour. Notice this, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. So not only does He tell them that there is a job to do, He is saying that I am going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will be with you, will be guiding you, will be helping you. You are not left alone in this treacherous time. And then in verse 13, those who endure till the end will be saved. The hope that is in that verse. If you endure... If you trust me, if you cling to my word, if you listen to me, you will be saved. It is a sure thing. It will happen. This is not, this is not Zelensky or Putin trying to put a positive spin on a situation to encourage people to do something so in hopes it might happen. This is real hope. If you endure, you will be saved. And so you should be asking me this morning, what in the world does the prophecy of the temple have to do with me today? What in the world? Lewis, okay, I get it. This is a nice little lesson, but what in the world does this prophecy about the temple have to do with me? What does this have to do about how I live? You know, next week, Gary gets to talk about the prophecy in the future. And that connection's a little clearer. 
But I want you to see something from this text that I think is so, so vitally important. What would have happened if the disciples had not paid attention, watched out, take heed, listened? What would have happened if when the city was surrounded that that Christ's followers didn't flee from the city? What would have happened? What would have happened if they hadn't listened to the Word of God? One of the things that's sad, and if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Mark, we know that there are many religious leaders who rejected Jesus, many different groups that rejected Jesus. And then one of the things is as we've been studying, as we've looked at some of these religious groups, that there was one religious group that was really cozying up to Rome. That they saw that things weren't going real well and they wanted to get real cozy with Rome so that they could be protected. That, that it was their trust and hope was in Rome, that they were going to help them out. And what do you think happened in 70 A.D.? Others that we saw looked at the temple and the religious institution of the day, this same religious institution that was rejecting Christ, looked at the temple and their religious institution as the thing that would save them. And so when 70 A.D. occurred, where do you think they ran? You see, it is terrible to hope in anything but the Word of God. It's a terrible thing to hope in anything other than the Word of God. And brothers and sisters, we are being lured into hoping in a lot of things in our day other than the Word of God. A lot of us are hoping in worldviews, in philosophies, in lines of thought, Politics. It's a horrible thing. It's a horrible thing to trust in anything but the Word of God. One of the realities of our day and age, one of the sins that have been from the very beginning and is so apparent in our day and age is that we like to take God's Word and try to fit it nicely into our way of life. That's not what this Word is about. The reality of what we should be doing as Christians is that we take God's word as supreme, as true. It's the truest thing that has ever been true, if that's a good way to say that. And we are to interpret our world from it. If you want to see the world correctly. So how do you live? How are you living? Are you on mission? Do you realize that like these disciples that we have a job to do as well and oh yeah, it hasn't changed it's that the gospel needs to go through us to the nations. That's what we are here for. That's why we are called Christians. This is our command. Go make disciples. It hasn't changed. And oh yeah, the Holy Spirit 
if you are a believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you and will empower you and give you wisdom and help you through difficult times. And for those of us who might get discouraged when we look at our world, we are to also remember that although the world looks bleak and disastrous and chaotic, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. That hope is sure. But if we place our hope and confidence in anything else, we do not have that blessed assurance. So as things continue to spiral out of control, as there continue to be wars, as there continue to be rumors of wars, as there continue to be natural disasters, as there continues to be evil and murder and all sorts of things, as there continues to be persecution amongst Christians, where will we run? Where will we run? Will we run to this word or will we run to some man-made structure for our hope? Will we read? Will we watch? Will we see? Will we be alert? Will we be strengthened? Will we be on mission? And will we endure? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that we would take these words, that you would take these words, your spirit would use these words to strengthen us today. Help us to be a people who are on mission, who are watchful, who are courageous, who are bold because of the spirit that is within us and who lean, who lean on the hope that it's not I, but you working in me that allows us to endure. God, help us to be those kind of people. It's in your name we pray. Amen.